Holy Father, glory and honor and praise belong only to you. We thank you for giving us rest last night and for waking us this morning. We are grateful for your immeasurable grace. How incredible it is to be indwelt by your Spirit. I pray that in these moments together, your Spirit will fill us, that you will give us wisdom, discernment, and knowledge that you will equip us to see you, to hear you, to love you. Our world is broken. It's broken in every way conceivable. In like fashion, our lives reflect this brokenness. We're consumed with fragmentation and divisiveness. But your word teaches and shows us a different way to live. You, through your power, through your presence in our lives, enable us to live differently. I pray that you will help us to follow this path. Only through the working of your Spirit in us, that you might equip us to know true unity. I pray that your universal church will reflect your glory that you will make your body to show supernatural unity in diversity. May this local body, Milton Community Church, may we manifest an uncommon unity that appears strange to the world. Make us to be radiant and beautiful, abounding with your glory, not for our own name's sake, but for your exaltation. Show us individually and corporately how sin divides. Create in us the passion to pursue unity as we see it displayed in the Trinity. Father, I'm a deeply flawed vessel. I have nothing to offer your people out of my own thoughts or desires. Your word affirms what I know well. I am nothing apart from you. I pray that you will make me usable in these moments. That you will fill my heart, my mind, and mouth with your words, your message, by your spirit. Give us all ears to receive, minds and hearts eager to obey in these moments. Make us more like Christ in whose name we pray. Amen. If you were to attend a, a service in uh, a small Roman Catholic church, St. Maria in Carinthia, Austria, you might find that the pastor has to pause in his sermon from time to time for an unusual reason. You see, there's a road that runs through the church. Churchgoers sit in the building opposite the side from where the pastor speaks. As early as 1443, there was a shrine built on this particular spot on the former Roman road. And at the time, the road was important for trade from Venice to Strasbourg. And the shrine gave travelers a place to rest, reflect, and to pray. In 1754, the shrine was replaced by a chapel. Since there was not much space between the road and the slope, a chapel was built with a sanctuary about six feet above the road. I think, fellows, you have a slide. I want to show you a picture of this. You think I'm making this up. So if you can put that up there. I want you to see how this worked. The chapel was built, the sanctuary about six feet above the road, and worshipers would gather on the street below. And somewhere along the way, early 1900s, some pastor began to feel sorry for the people having to stand out in the rain on a day like today and in the weather. So he had them construct a place for the congregation to sit, and it was on the opposite side of the road. Two levels with benches, chairs in there. And so you have this small road going through separating the church. Now, this church is unique in that it's divided physically. 
But the sad fact is many churches are divided spiritually. Paul wrote to the Corinthian church that he had heard that there were divisions among them. We heard reference earlier in this service to Christ praying for unity among believers. As we are one, He prayed to the Father. He and the Father, one. May they also be one in us and us in them, that the world may believe that you have sent me, He prayed. First half of Ephesians we saw God's plan of redemption unveiled, unfurled, if you will, unpacked for us in very clear terms. We saw that this redemption was a remarkable feat orchestrated completely by God in every detail. The second half, beginning here with chapter 4, is much more practical on how believers are to follow Christ, how we actually live for Christ in this broken world. And here in these first six verses of chapter 4, Paul has unity on his mind, and it's in his heart. Two things are happening here. He issues a call to unity, and then he tells us where we find the ability to have this unity. So I want us to take a few moments and dive into these verses this morning and pray that we hear from God that He might speak into our hearts clearly about this important subject. So let's look at the call to unity or the call for unity that comes from Paul. What do we mean when we use the word unity? It's something we've used a lot around here especially in the last few months, as we have sought to bring two congregations together and make one church. Unity. Well, it means, according to some dictionaries that I consulted this week, you could define it as the quality or state of not being multiple, of being oneness, being in oneness. It's a condition of harmony, accord. A totality of related parts being joined together as a whole. Sounds good. Sounds reasonable. Think about taking uh, what you drove in this morning. Somewhere along the way, your car was just a pile of parts. Individual parts. Many unlike the others. And yet, it was assembled together to make one unit. One vehicle, one automobile that could meet your needs. You take a book. It's a compilation of many articles or chapters that are assembled together, put together in order to make a whole. It stands as a whole. Join two people together and you have a marriage. Spiritually, emotionally, mentally. The two become one. God tells us. Some of you who are more skilled than most of the rest of us can take many different kinds of ingredients and blend them together, expose them to heat, and make a cake. We're hoping you, some of you will do that for tonight. Is unity something that Christians should be concerned about? Or is it something that we simply take for granted? Something that we just assume is taking place? Is it important? And if so, why is it important? And what does it look like? What does it look like in the local church body? What does it look like in the universal church? Paul calls his readers to live in unity. So let's explore it. Let's see what he says about it. First of all, he says, I therefore a prisoner for the Lord. Interesting way to start a section about unity. I, a prisoner. Why does Paul call himself a prisoner for the Lord? Well, he does it three times in this letter. He did it at the beginning of chapter 3. He does it again in chapter 6. He refers to himself being in chains. 
being separated from the body. Maybe he's very mindful of the need, the importance, and he's missing the unity of being in close contact, feeling the oneness that he should feel with the body. Being in prison, he was there, he says, because of his gospel work. A prisoner for the Lord, that is, for the sake of those he's writing. I'm reminded of the Lord's words in the Sermon on the Mount when he said, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. Blessed are they, happy are they, at peace and contentment are they. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account, he said. Paul has some street cred in my humble judgment. A guy with his track record could easily be advocating for retaliation. He could be sounding the alarm and raising, trying to encourage the Christians to raise up with great animosity toward the people that were persecuting them. But he doesn't. He's writing to them and talking to them about unity, calling them to unity. In fact, I would say, first of all, that this is an urgent exhortation. It's an urgent exhortation that he espouses to them. The first three words here are exactly the same as in Romans 12, 1, where he said, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Now, there are three possible senses for this verb that is used in the language here. One is to comfort. One is an appeal an entreaty or request, and then the third one is to exhort. Exhort is best for this particular context. It has a sense of urgency. It has a note of authority with it. This is not a suggestion that Paul is offering. It's not a recommendation that he's offering. It's not a word of encouragement necessarily. It's a firm admonition. Do this, he said. Do this. Be in unity. Be in unity. It's important. In fact, he tells us it's a necessary commitment for those of us who are in Christ. Walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. As I said, chapters 4 through 6 here in Ephesians become much more practical. In fact, he's writing about how you walk. This, this word, papateteo, talks about as you go about doing things. All aspects of life, not just walking literally from one spot to the other, but as you're walking through life. Everything that you're doing, this is what we should be doing. It points to a general conduct or lifestyle. It infers that Christ follower is to change his or her behavior or conduct. They no longer live as they did before Christ. In Christ, their life patterns, attitudes, behaviors are different. The way they live reflects their calling to follow Christ. Their lives are conducted in a way that is worthy of the calling. God has extended this call. He has called us. He has prepared all of this redemption for us. He's prepared all this for His own glory, He says. Now, Paul says that we should walk according to that calling to the measure that God has gone to, to restore us unto Himself, we should be reflecting that in how we conduct ourselves in our lives. And a big component of that is unity. I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling in which you have been called. Thirdly, He offers us an uncommon pattern that reflects this way we walk. What is the way we walk specifically? Well, he tells us. He says we should walk with all humility and gentleness. You won't hear this being talked about in the news cycle on television, will you? <laughs> When's the last time you heard an anchor lead with that? Well, today I want to report to you about some people that are walking in, in uh, uh, gentleness and humility. 
It doesn't make the news in our world, will it? It's not a trend on social media. In fact, probably what you'll see on social media is you're going to see some video footage of some people who are engaging in a fist fight, behaving poorly, right? Showing their hostility, their animosity toward one another. It's virtually every day. I don't go looking for it. It just seems like every time I look up, I see a situation where people have devolved into some sort of a fist fight over something. Lots of times, it's something very silly. Our society is not interested in humility and gentleness. Pride and arrogance are the staples for sinners, for a sinful and broken world. We prefer posturing and preening and violence in many instances. But Scripture tells us that we're to be something different as Christ's followers. Philippians 2.3 says, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Humility and gentleness are polar opposites to self-seeking and vainglorious boasting. 1 Peter 5, 5 says, Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. It conveys lowliness of mind. Society pushes us in the, in the way of thinking or toward the idea that you must love yourself. You love yourself, you exalt yourself. If you love yourself and exalt yourself, then you expect to be treated in a certain way, right? Today's society tells us that the moral standard is no longer objective truth, but it's more about how you feel inside. Be authentic. Be true to yourself. This is the moral truth now. And anyone who says differently is evil. There's little space in our culture for humility and gentleness. Such people are viewed as weaklings. It's interesting that Paul leads with humility and gentleness. As he's emphasizing unity, he leads with humility and gentleness. He's aware of the past pride that plagued these people. They're living in a prideful area, a, a, an area that was affluent in an, its own right. Everything circling around the temple of Diana and false worship. People were gathering there, coming to this, to this city, and they were spending their money. And the people there benefited from it. He wants to redirect the focus of these followers of Christ. Keep your focus on God. Gentleness is not weakness. It's just like meekness. It's self-control, mastering our strength. Barclay describes this term in this way. He says, the man of gentleness is always angry at the right time and never angry at the wrong time. Paul says not only are we to be humble and gentle, but we should act with patience. We all like patience when others apply it toward us, do we not? I love it when people are patient with me as I stumble and bumble along, but we're not so keen about it when the pressure is put upon us to be patient with others. It is that cautious endurance that does not abandon hope. This is what it means to be patient. We endure even when the immediate results do not come, or they do not come as quickly as we like. Like a farmer who's waiting upon the harvest. Like the prophets who uttered their message, their prophecies, and then waited, many of them never seeing the fruit. We live in an extremely impatient world. Technology makes us this way, encourages us to feel this way. Drive-throughs encourage us to live in the moment. Everything's got to be now, now, now. Everything must operate according to our schedule. In many ways, we've become a world filled with adults who are children emotionally. Give it to me now. You notice that? Listen to your children sometimes. Everything has to happen now, right? 
God is our example. As we follow Christ, His steadfast love remains steady, enduring forever, Scripture says. We are to bear with one another in love. Bearing with one another in love, Paul says. Holding yourselves back from one another. In other words, differences between believers are to be tolerated. Love covers a multitude of sins, we say. Love covers a multitude of sins. It works in our families, with our spouses, with our children, with our parents. Love prevails. We forbear with one another because we love. Our differences are swallowed up by love that unites us. If I can be candid with you this morning, one of the greatest challenges that faced me as a pastor and has for years is the sadness, the hurt that I experience when people in church allow themselves to separate, when they are not willing to forbear with one another's differences. I fear we find it too easy to simply opt out and give up on each other. I'm so thankful that the Lord has not given up on me. Every day I'm more mindful than the day before how much I need the grace of God. I'm so grateful that He loves me unconditionally even though I've never deserved His love nor His patience. I don't deserve it today. I won't deserve it tomorrow. But I'm grateful for it. And this is the same grace that we are to display toward one another. This leads to unity. This is the basis and a foundation for unity. Some define this as tolerating differences, but I believe it's more than that. I believe we should pray for one another regarding sinful patterns in our lives, the flaws that are in our lives. We pray for one another. We intercede for one another. But I also believe that we should work toward and pray toward learning to appreciate the differences, the diversity that God has brought together in His body. And pray that God will use our differences for His glory, differences that enable us to to sharpen one another, that we become more like Christ. It's not my job to make you more like Christ, but it is my job to help sharpen. It's your job to help sharpen each other in love, in the love of Christ, patiently, praying that God will use our differences for His glory. You can't do it in your own strength. You can't will yourself or make yourself do it, but it's by the power of His Spirit working in you and through you. And Paul says that you should be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit. This means to make every effort, to give zealous effort, to be unwilling to surrender, to seed the ground of unity. That's not what we are to do, to guard, to keep, to maintain the unity of the Spirit. There's no implication of speed here. He's not talking about do this in haste. He's talking about being diligent, spare no effort, be faithful to pursue, guard and keep the unity in the faith as if you were guarding precious jewels. We ensure our own lives do not grieve the Spirit As one way of guarding the unity. We ensure that our own lives are not grieving the Spirit. In fact, this is a beginning point, right? It's that, Lord, you examine me, examine my heart, examine my life to ensure that I'm where I need to be with you. We have responsibility to encourage and exhort one another in the same way. We're to work at building unity. Not whispering, spreading seeds of disgruntlement and accusation and malcontentedness. All those should be put away. 
All those should be put under the blood of Christ. They poison the unity and act like acid, eating away at its foundation and ultimately destroying it. He says, do this in the bond of peace. He has the idea of binding, such as strengthening a structure, a defense structure, or garments, like, like a football player getting ready to go out and play the game. If you've never got to watch that, I'm sure, ladies. But it's an interesting thing. I can remember back in the day, and, and it would begin early, you know, hours before the game. Guys would be getting their ankles taped. They probably don't do that anymore. Guys would be getting their, you know, things on, pads, special pads to protect special places. And then they would start to put on the gear and all the pads in the uniform. All you see is the pretty shirt and the pants. But there's all this stuff in there that has to be laced up and tapped, taped and, and wrapped. Binding it all up to guard and protect. It's like in a time of flood when people take those bags and fill them with sand and begin to stack them up in order to divert the water, to protect from the dangers that would be coming. We protect our unity by binding our body and our individual lives and our corporate life with peace, the peace of Christ. And it comes only through Him. Jesus said in John 14, 27, Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you, not as the world gives. It's different. It's His peace. So Paul gives us an urgent command, an urgent exhortation. And then he offers us the fountainhead for our unity. The fountainhead or source for our unity. He says we are one body. This is the universal church. There is no concept or idea presented in the Old Testament like this. This is not Gentiles becoming Jews, as in the Old Testament, or Jews becoming Gentiles. It's unbelieving Jews and Gentiles becoming one body of Christ followers. They believe the gospel, they repent of sin, and trust in Christ's finished work. The metaphor of a body is striking and very effective here. Many parts, fingers, nails, hair, eyes, ears, not to mention all the complexities inside under the skin, right? All these many parts, yet one body joined together and growing into a holy temple, Paul writes. The parts of your body don't declare war on the other parts, do they? If they do, you're in serious trouble. You have some sort of disease that's leading that revolution. An infection or a cancer. The body will rally together and to fight against it. One body, he says. This is a spirit of unity. One spirit. I want you to turn back to Ephesians chapter 2. This is such an incredible text, all of Ephesians. But I want you to look, beginning with verse 11. I want to read these verses again because I think they're so important for us. Therefore remember that at one time, verse 11, you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now... But now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For He Himself is our peace, who has made us both one, and has broken down in His flesh the dividing wall of hostility. He's taken the road that divides out and has brought us together. By abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace. 
and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God. How? By the Spirit. By the Spirit, one Spirit, what Christ did for us at Calvary, and by His resurrection, the Holy Spirit now applies to the Christ follower. He now has worked this in us, and He indwells every Christ follower. We have access in one Spirit to the Father. The human body has many parts, many different parts, intricately woven together, working together to form one body. Life in us joins all parts into one essence. The blood, the oxygen, the fluids, the nerves, great intricacy, complexity, and yet one. The church has innumerable believers joined by the Spirit into one body. Different, distinct, yes, but that differences, those differences, that distinction is consumed by the oneness of the Spirit. The same Spirit that was in Paul is in you today if you're in Christ. Hello? The sa- very same Spirit that Jesus told His disciples would come upon them at Pentecost and did indeed come is the same spirit that resides in you today if you're in Christ. You're one with those saints who have gone before and we in like manner are all one here today and we will be one with all of those who follow after us. One spirit. One spirit. Only one spirit. This is the only way that two congregations can come together and form one church. The truth is, we were already one. Just meeting in two different locations. One spirit. And he says there's one hope. Hope's about expectation. It's a confident expectation. It's directed toward eternal God who protects and ultimately delivers His own. We're not swayed, we're not discouraged, or we shouldn't be, by what's taking place in our world today because we have a hope, an expectation beyond what this creation offers. An expectation and hope that God has given us that there is better and more yet to come. We look for His coming, His return. The heathen, the lost man, does not look. The heathen has all his hope and expectation in the things of this world, not in something that's better. He is resigned. He is destined to always be disappointed by the emptiness that this world offers. Things that look good in the moment, but tomorrow will have eroded and decayed and lost significance and power and ability. This is not true in God. Our hope is in a God who is always able, more than sufficient, and fulfills His promises. And we are to be compelled by this hope. This enables us to be in unity. We are His bride. We are His bride, one. In Christ Jesus. One Lord. It is Christ alone who purchased redemption. It is Christ alone who is the basis for our hope. It's Christ alone who is head over the church. Can I say that again? It is Christ alone who is head over the church. I know sometimes you think that's just a platitude. 
but I actually believe it. That we belong to Him. Just as this old ugly head sits on this body, and if you took them apart, this body would quickly die, as would the brain. Everything that goes on in this body has some connection to the head, right? I don't understand how it all works, but I know that I just put my fingers out like that because my head told, instructed, and enabled, and empowered it to happen. There's nothing that this body can do that the brain is not involved in leading to do. And in the same way, the church has Christ as His head. We only can do, we only have the power and the ability to do as Christ instructs and enables us to do. He makes us one. He broke down in His flesh the dividing wall of hostility, created in Himself one new man in place of the two. He alone has made peace. And what He has made, peace, how dare we take, try to take that peace away? Right? How can we major on conflict or that which is not peaceful? when Christ has gone to the cross to ensure our peace. One Lord, one Master. In other words, we have one boss. One boss. Our world is complex and data abounds. And it often even changes before it's fully disseminated. It can make us feel empowered and authoritative about many things and the church can be affected by that prevailing attitude in the culture we can bring our preferences and our uh, ideas that we've found you know I can kind of relate to doctors you know when the internet first became a thing and you know you have something going on in your body and you go to the doctor and the doctor comes in to talk to you about it and you said look I've already checked this out doc where'd you check it out well I've been on the internet right and the doctor says, uh, yeah, right. Don't try to medicate yourself based on the Internet. And I might say in the same way that maybe getting your spiritual instruction and direction from the Internet might be just as dangerous. You see, God has designed us to come together as the body of Christ, together with Him as the head. He is our Lord. He alone is Lord. One faith. This is not the noun faith, an objective faith. It is a subjective faith which is exercised by all Christians in Christ. We believe Him. We trust Him. We live lives that are done so, empowered by trusting in His promises. It's not something that we talk about. My faith, my faith, my faith is something we put on the shelf Monday through Friday or Monday through Saturday, and we only take off the shelf on Sunday like we do our Bibles when we come to church. But faith is the way we go about living every moment of every day. I live by faith that there is an eternity beyond this world that Christ has purchased for me through His death, burial, and resurrection. I live by faith that I don't have to fear the things of this world. But I live each and every moment by the air that is that faith and trust in Christ. So I shouldn't be discouraged by the things of this world, but be empowered by this one faith that Christ Himself has given as a gift to us to trust Him in all things, to walk accordingly. One baptism, this phrase, has created a lot of discussion and even controversy. Some believe it points to the right of baptism, of water baptism. This doesn't seem to be the case to me. The many modes associated with water baptism would suggest that that would be more divisive than unifying. And he is talking about unity here. So I don't think that's what he's pointing toward. Nothing in the context makes, that, makes us think about water baptism. 
Some claim that this is referring to the Spirit's baptism. But again, I think um, in this passage, Paul is certainly emphasizing the triune God, but he's spoken about the Holy Spirit previous to this. Right now, he's talking about the second person in the Trinity, the Son. So if he were going to use this talking about the Spirit's baptism, it seems that he would have done it when he was talking about the Spirit as he entered into this discussion. Here he's talking about the second person. Nothing in the broader context points to the Spirit's baptism. It seems he's pointing metaphorically to the believer's baptism in Christ's death. Baptized in Christ's death. Paul speaks of believer's union with Christ in death and resurrection. Baptism signifies identification. Let me give you some scriptures to kind of help support this. 1 Corinthians 10, 2 says that, And all, talking, pointing back to the Israelites coming out of Egypt, that all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. Mark 10, 38, Jesus said to them, talking to the disciples, You do not know what you're asking. Remember they asked if we could sit prominent places in your kingdom when you come into your kingdom are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized clearly talking about his death his crucifixion Galatians 3 27 for as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ and we could go to Romans 6 and read verses 1 through 11 and you see this expounded even more baptized into the death and resurrection of Christ. Harold Hainer says that the one baptism most likely refers to the internal reality of having been baptized into, identified with, the one Lord by means of one faith mentioned in the verse. And then he says, one God and Father who is over all and through all and in all. Some attempt to use this as a proof text for God as a universal Father over all creatures. It's the unity of all believers modeled by the Father of all believers. The following statement makes this clear where he says, who is over all, through all, and in all. This is not a description that would be applicable to an unbeliever. He's not in them, nor necessarily working through them. It is obviously pointing to Christ, followers, indwelt by the Holy Spirit. This section is saturated with unifying markers. The one body of believers is vitalized by one Spirit, so all believers have one hope. That hope is united to its one Lord, Christ, by each member's one act of faith, and his or her identity with Him is one baptism. One God, the Father, is supreme over all, operative through all, and resides in all. All seven components are united in the Trinity. Clearly, the triune God is the center and model of our unity. The triune God is the fountainhead for our unity. We seek to do it in our own strength, we'll fail. We pray often and intentionally for unity. I hear it. I love it. It's on everyone's heart and mind. We want to be unified. We desire to be unified. But I think it's going to take more than just praying it in a prayer and thinking about it in a casual way, there needs to be a more passionate pursuit of unity. And we cannot overstate the importance of unity. As Christians, as Christ followers, Paul strongly admonishes us to live in this way, to be in conformity with Christ. It's a manner worthy of our calling and in unity with other Christ followers. And the church is a function of this calling. This does not mean that we never disagree. 
does not mean that we never disagree, but it does mean that we cannot be disagreeable with one another. You understand the difference, right? Greg likes Auburn. I don't like Auburn. (laughs) Don't take offense. It's just an illustration. Brian likes North Carolina State. I don't know how anybody can like North Carolina State. But but that's neither here nor there, is it? That's neither here nor there. One body, brothers in Christ. We can disagree about things that are not absolutely imperative about our relationship with God and in the church, the things that are clearly marked out in Scripture. Those things maybe we have trouble disagreeing about. There are some things that are tertiary, secondary issues that we may find reason to be able to be on different sides of the fence about or not fully understand. But those things of first order we can't disagree about. But in no case, in no instance, is it permitted for Christians to be disagreeable with one another. And for that matter, I'm not even sure that we should be in the world at large. Now, I'm not saying it's easy. But our strength comes through the Spirit of God residing in us. It's the unity of the triune God, the Spirit, the Son, the Father, that abides in us. This is the heart of Jesus' prayer, right? Make them one with us. Make them one with us. It's in the Godhead that we have the source for this unity. It's in the Godhead we have the capability to live in unity. So, let me ask you a couple of questions for reflection. And then I want to offer you a couple of things to apply the message. Are you living living your life in a manner worthy of the calling? Worthy of the gospel that we have clearly seen unfold by Paul in the first three chapters. I'm not asking if you're living a perfect life. That's not the question. Are you consciously, eagerly seeking to live for Christ, with Christ, by Christ? Are you pursuing humility, gentleness, patience, loving tolerance of others' differences, zealously working to preserve and defend the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace? So how do we apply this message? Well, here's some things. These are not exhaustive, but some things I will throw out at you. Ask God to show you the state of your own heart. Do you dare? God, show me the condition of my own heart. Where am I? What, how would you evaluate? Lord, am I mostly interested in pleasing myself? Lord, do I present an attitude of arrogance, pridefulness toward others? Lord, am I resisting your humbling disciplines in my life? Lord, do you do secretly, do I secretly believe I am better, smarter, or more righteous than others? Lord, am I seeking to usurp your lordship in my life? in the church ask God to show you instances where you have caused or encouraged disunity do you dare (laughs) I would say we very much should dare there can't be unity in the church if there's lingering disunity in the church Lord lead me to that person I've offended with my words Lord give me courage to go to the one I've treated condescendingly Enable me to humble myself and make amends. You know, the enemy will use this. He uses this to continue to keep us with the road running between us. Because you think, I can't do that. I just can't do that. It's so embarrassing. It's so shameful. It's never as bad as you think it's going to be. In fact, it's it's always glorious. God honors it. Because grace will swallow up. You take that first step, and grace will empower, the Spirit of God will empower and 
supply the healing almost immediately. Lord, teach me how to love even when differences make it hard. <laughs> Lord, give me wisdom and discernment to recognize how to guard unity. How do I protect and defend unity? Ask God to make us one in Him, for Him, and by His power. Lord, equip and empower me to give you thanks always and for everything in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And to submit, to submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Let us pray. Father, Satan is relentless in his attacks and desires to destroy he has hated you, and he hates all you, all who belong to you. He hates it when you are glorified through the trophies of your grace that we are. He hates it when the church is radiant and glorious as your bride. But you are honored and exalted by these things. Lord, work in our hearts and bring about an urgency to be unapologetically yours. Lord, I beg you to give us an unquenchable thirst for unity and for your glory. I beg you to expose anything and everything in my heart that poisons unity in your church. Lord, I beg you to make me foremost and effectively a passionate defender and advocate for unity in your church. I beg you to give us all a ravenous appetite for your glory to desire more than we desire anything to make you known in this community. That those around us might see your beauty shining in this world, so darkened by sin. Lord, I beg you to make us one, even as your Godhead is one. May we all be one, Father, just as you are in Christ and Christ in you. May we all be one in you so that the world, so that the world may believe your gospel. Amen.